of O Folk. Hope all of you are doing well and staying safe. I'm doing good and most importantly, I'm super excited because this episode is going to be a very special one. For those who follow O Folk on social media, you already know, but those who are not aware This episode is going to be a different one than the usual Ofolk episodes. This one is going to be Ofolk's very first interview episode with our very first guest. And like every first, this is indeed a very special one. Before I introduce you to my guest, let me tell you how I came to know about her. So while preparing content for my episodes and searching for folk tales, obviously I read a lot of books, online materials, and many other stuff. During one such story hunting, as I like to call it, I came across this fascinating blog called The Multicolored Diary. This blog explores different genres of folk tales. traditional stories from across the globe talks about folktale storybooks many of which are not even in print anymore i also found amusing culture stories here so obviously i was curious to know who writes these thoughtful blogs the writer of the blog and my today's guest is dr chenge zalka she is not just the writer of the multicolor diary blog but also Hungary's first international storyteller. Yes, as surprising as it might sound, but you heard me right. In her website, she writes, and I quote, "I am a professional storyteller. I even do taxes. You can't really get more official than that." <laughs> yeah, can't agree more. Those tax docs are true testament to her unique profession. As a professional storyteller, Dr. Zalka is spreading the joy of folk tales and storytelling not only within Hungary but also throughout the globe. Besides being a professional storyteller, she's an author, a TED Talk speaker, and most importantly, a folk tale researcher. She collects, researches, and performs traditional stories in three languages: English, Spanish, and Hungarian. Dr. Zalka holds a master's degree in storytelling. Surprise surprise. Yes, that's a legit thing. And even I didn't know you can study storytelling in a school before meeting her. She has a PhD in culture studies and has published various books both in English and Hungarian. She especially enjoys telling long traditional tales and epics. Thanks to technology, the distance between United States where I live and Budapest where Dr. Zalka resides didn't seem very distant. We had a long chat and I'm extremely excited to share that with all of you. 
We spoke over Zoom, so the audio quality will be different, of course, compared to the other episodes. And the duration of this episode will also be longer than what my episodes normally are. I mean, when you meet a like-minded person and start chatting and you have so much to talk about, time just flies. We all know that feeling, right? But I can absolutely promise there's so much great stuff she has shared that I'm sure you will enjoy every bit of it. So, without any more delay, let's welcome Dr. Chenge Salka in the very first interview episode of Ofok. Dr. Salka, thank you so much for your time. I know you have a busy schedule, but even on that, you obliged to come on my show and talk to me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. I'm so smitten by your journey. It fascinates me. It inspires me. I'm curious to know, and I'm sure many of my listeners will also feel the same. What does it look like to be a modern day storyteller? Like how does a typical work day in your life function? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a trick question for me because I actually do have a full-time job as a storyteller. I was a freelancer for a while uh, and I did the classic like freelancer performing artist lifestyle mm -hmm. of uh, doing gigs and traveling a lot and, and managing my own business. But uh, for the past five years, I've been doing work for an NGO that supports children in the state care system. This is my full-time job now, and I am the head of the Vilaxate Foundation's storytelling program. So I work in an office, but my main job is to teach volunteer storytellers, to train volunteer storytellers to go into foster homes and tell bedtime stories to children. That's my main job, everything that comes with it, finding stories for them, you know, translating stories for them. And of course, I also go into the homes in the evenings and, and do bedtime stories for the, the foster kids. And then in the summer, we do story camps with a lot of storytelling. On weekends or my days off, I still go and do my own performances in various places. So it is a very busy schedule. <laughs> Of course, I was reading through your website. I learned that you were very young when you took this unique decision that you want to be a storyteller. Post-2000s, when the world <laughs> has opened up and so many technology and innovation options have come up, new career options comes with that. In such a world, there is this little girl who wants <laughs> to be a storyteller. How fascinating is that? <laughs> I really want to know uh, what inspired you. What made you believe that such a unique career option can be a reality? I grew up with a lot of storytelling. My grandparents told me a lot of stories. We had that classic, like sitting around the kitchen table, family storytelling um, thing that uh, that is so rare these days. Uh, my grandfather, especially uh, my father's father, uh, had a lot of the local legends, the local folk tales, you know, classic village storyteller style. And my parents also told me a lot of stories. So I grew up with this living oral tradition and it just made me natural naturally repeat those stories and want to tell those stories. And I had this inspiration whenever I read a good story, I heard a good story. I always had to go to people and say, hey, you have to hear this. You need to listen to this. This is so cool. It was a love for stories 
that made me a storyteller more than a love for performance. I was in a theater group in high school, but to me, that felt like a very different genre of performance than, than oral storytelling. I was not good on stage when I had to be somebody else. I, I couldn't really do that. Yeah. But I, I did have that natural inspiration to go and, and share stories with people. I was reading all these Irish legends when I was a teenager and I really wanted to be a bard. And then they told me that that's not really a thing that people do anymore. And I was very sad about that. But I wanted to be an Irish bard. And then I, I went to university in Budapest and I studied archaeology. And I think I also was interested in archaeology because of the stories. But I always had this, you know, draw towards oral storytelling that was not really a known art form in Hungary at the time. There were some known traditional folk tellers, but it didn't really exist in these urban spaces spaces or, or performance spaces yet. Yeah, that was 17 years ago. Then I just stumbled across American storytellers online, um, the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and just information on American tellers who make a living as professional storytellers, which started, you know, the storytelling revival in the U.S. in the 70s. By the time I stumbled upon this in 2006, had, you know, three decades of a revival of storytelling conferences, festivals, you know, uh, workshops and all of that. And then suddenly it just blew my mind that there are people who do this as a profession. You can study this, make a living from this, you know, you can get paid for doing this. And <laughs> yeah. and then and in 2006, uh, when I when I discovered this online, I immediately knew that this this was the profession that I've been looking for. This is extremely fascinating because I am originally from India. Indian households a lot about storytelling. Our grandparents tell a lot of stories, Indian legends and uh, traditional folk tales. There's so much, but it never crossed my mind that I want to be a storyteller or that <laughs> profession, you know, that really fascinated me. 2006 seems to be a significant year for you, as you just pointed out. You're talking to storytellers from across the globe and you're learning about the art of storytelling. What are the techniques of storytelling that you gathered or what did you learn regarding the art of storytelling itself? I found out that there was a mailing list for storytellers around the world, mostly Americans. And I joined that mailing list and I just sent an email saying, I'm in Hungary and I would love to do this profession. I had pretty good English, but my English wasn't, you know, nearly as good as it is today. And then by the next morning, I had about 60 emails from storytellers around the world saying, this is so great. Welcome. It was such a community. There was no jealousy or guarding professional secrets mm -hmm. in any shape or form. People immediately started sending me stories and tips and advice on how to be a professional teller. And I just started learning so much from them. It just so happened that some of them were visiting Hungary around that time. We met up in Budapest and they just brought me books and gave me advice. It was actually a storyteller from New Orleans called uh, Angela Davis. She had gigs in Budapest at an international school and she took me with her and I was really excited to see a professional storyteller on her stage. This is going to be so cool. Yeah. And when the kids gathered in the auditorium, she just like grabbed me and she pushed me out on stage and she said, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> ended up being the opening act for her performance uh, just wow. like right off the bat and uh, that was very exciting. You also mentioned in your website that you enjoy telling epics 
and long traditional story what fascinates you towards them because they are very complex full of adventure and love and emotional highs and lows it's a full journey back when i was a teenager and i was falling in love with the, all the irish hero legends it was like a, a tv series so you have these heroes that you get to know and they have all of these dozens and dozens of different stories about them and all these adventures that they go on and they have their personalities they have their superpowers and i just absolutely loved that again that was before the marvel movies became big i loved comic books for the same reason that you get to know this cast of characters and then you find out more and more about them with each story Epics are the same for me that you have these fascinating characters and you can follow their entire life uh, all of their adventures and you know they fall in love they fight battles they they travel to fantastic places and there is drama and you know all of those human emotions so to me epics are very rich in all of those things that make us human that makes a story exciting you mentioned about superheroes you're also an author and your first published book came out in 2013 tales of superhuman powers <laughs> 55 traditional stories from around the world it features folk tales that involves different superpowers from invisibility to shapeshifting and everything in between today you see this marvel movies people are fascinated by superhuman stories why do you think we as humans are so drawn towards superpowers I loved doing that project honestly I collected these folk tales and I would go to schools and ask the kids you know what superpower would you pick for yourself and then whatever they said I had a story that went with it I loved showing them that these dreams of superpowers have existed long before you know movies or comic books came along that there is something very human about dreaming about flying or being invisible or shape-shifting or turning into something else And I just love how much it says about what power they are longing for, searching for. Often when I work with kids from from difficult backgrounds or kids in the foster system, what they answer is that they want to fly or they say that they want to run really fast. You can feel those instincts of freedom, wishing that they could be free or they could be stronger than they are. It's really fascinating to me. Also, when I really got into comic books, also as a teenager, my big enthusiasm and was for the X-Men comics you know on top of the weird superpowers it has the added yeah. bonus of talking about being an outcast yeah. or 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 found family like belonging somewhere because you're special and unique people call you weird and you don't know where you fit in and maybe you're bullied but you also have a found family of of like-minded people and i was uh, bullied in school and i was a very strange kid surprise surprise <laughs> very much into folktales and mythology but but that that spoke to me on that level of of having your unique powers and then finding a place to fit in you work with children who have been through traumatic situation share a bit about that experience the ngo i work for started out as a folktale therapy organization but then we soon discovered that these kids go through a lot of therapy they have a lot of psychologists as an outsider walking into the foster home and bringing in another therapeutic process is is very tricky and they get a lot of that So what we decided is that we want to give them an experience of being a child. 
So we have summer camps where they can, you know, swim in the lake and eat fruit from the trees and play with animals and run around in the garden. And it's just the childhood where, where you don't really have to worry about things and you're in a safe place with safe people, you know, just enjoying yourself. And our storytelling program is the same. We go in the evenings. The entire thing is about them. So this story is for you. You can speak. You can ask questions. Uh, you can, you know, curl up on my lap. I can like pat your hair. They can get that extra affection that they very mm -hmm. often lack just because of how the homes are set up. They have, you know, 10 to 12 kids to one adult. They don't have the same kind of individual attention and quality time that mm -hmm. they would get uh, within their family. So storytelling for us is a way of connecting with these kids and without doing any therapy, stories convey that hope and that trust in the world and all of those values that are important. Before talking to you, I was thinking it more from a therapy point of view, but now that you explained it to me, it makes more sense. They already go through a lot of therapy. They might need a sense of normalcy and stories give them that. This is really incredible. Actually, folktale therapy is very, very popular in Hungary. So there are schools where people can actually study and it's super popular. Many times when I tell somebody in Hungary that I'm a storyteller, they immediately say, oh, so you do therapy, right? Oh, okay. uh, so it's actually more known than performance storytelling. So actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because it is very common. It's just not something that, that our organization does, but many organizations actually do it. We should have it more throughout the globe. These specific methodologies are a Hungarian invention. There are two mm. schools that are very famous in Hungary for developing this methodology of folktale therapy. But it exists uh, internationally. There is, I think in Portugal, there is a conference every year on fairy tale therapy. It's there internationally, but to be very honest, I haven't seen it like a very common thing. If it's part of school curriculums, like the way you mentioned in Hungary, I think this will be very, very beneficial, especially in today's time when kids are so addicted to online world. This will be a great way to give them a creative diversion where they can think they can become part of something outside the digital world, which I think is very important. And this is very, very constructive and creative at the same time. That is very true. Yes. <laughs> I want to talk to you about folktale research. It seems to be like an unending journey, like you're going down and down that hole and in many cases, it might happen that there's not a lot of documentation existing on certain folktales. What keeps you going about this process? Well, I love the element of discovery. Every time I go on a, a research journey, I always find something new. Love finding weird stories that I cannot believe there is a story about this. You know, that's <laughs> just discovering how incredibly creative humans are. So many cultures around the world have so many fascinating stories about so many things that you would have never imagined. It's an endless supply of finding new things. And that is amazing to me. And I also love seeing what connects these stories. I go and look for different variants of the same story. 
So I will have, you know, I'm doing research on whatever, Cinderella. And I go and I find Cinderella type stories from South America and Africa and from Asia and like all the continents. And I put all of these many, many different Cinderella's next to each other. And then I look at what makes them similar. What's the core of the story that is always the same? Like what is the feeling behind it that makes people tell these stories again and again? And then I also love seeing the embellishments, the decorations, because those make the story culture specific. Those little details are also very interesting to me to see how the same core story can be dressed up in so many different ways and how these details can actually fundamentally change the meaning of the core story as well. That is really amazing to me. So I love that type of research when I keep finding the same story over and over and over again. I had one of the questions on that and the example I had in my mind was Cinderella because I have <laughs> also read a couple of variants. Folktales travel like water. Is it possible to trace the origin of a story or is it at all needed to trace an origin? I don't think it's needed. You know, this is an age-old discussion among folklorists and story researchers, you know, where do stories come from? Yeah. Sometimes it's really fascinating to trace a story back to its earliest forms. If you can find the same tale type or the same motif, mm -hmm. you know, in ancient times, in ancient sources. For example, you can trace the 12 dancing princesses to ancient Greece, where it was still, it was a bacchanalia. So that, you know, princesses mm -hmm. went out to participate in the bacchanalia. It tells you a lot about that story and where it comes from and all the deep symbolism of that tale. But at the same time, I very, very thoroughly believe that humans come up with the same stuff over and over again. <laughs> so yeah. just because I found the same tale type in Indonesia and, and South Africa and then Switzerland doesn't mean that this actually physically traveled from one place to another mm -hmm. as much as I think humans come up with a lot of the same things just because we live the same experiences. You know, everybody's afraid of death. Everybody has conflict between siblings, everybody falls in love, you know. These are universal experiences that will yield many of the same types of stories. So I don't think all stories can be traced back to, to a single origin point. So after so many years of storytelling and your continuous research and authoring, do you have a favorite genre? I'm sure you have been asked this so many times. At least you're asking genre and not favorite story. That would okay. be really hard. Okay. <laughs> that, that would be really hard to. I don't know what the, the technical term for it. I say I heard somebody call them warband stories, but basically the kinds of like teams of heroes, legend cycles that feature a group of heroes instead of one big hero that does everything alone. So, mm -hmm. you know, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, Fionn McCool from Ireland, the Nart heroes from, from the Caucasus, the Argonauts from Greece. So I love epic tales and legend cycles about groups of heroes. And every time I find a new one, I am really excited. A couple of years ago, I really got into collecting what I call feminist folktales. I found a lot of folktales about heroic women and brave women and even warrior women. And around the world, there are many, many stories like that. It got very surprisingly rare when I looked for teams of women. So you have all these warband stories with all of these men. And then sometimes you have like the Smurfette syndrome when there's like one woman in the team, like Robin oh, Hood yeah. and Maid Marian, or like uh, King Arthur and like Guinevere. And there's usually one woman who's very important. But when you look into having 
many teams of women, suddenly it's very rare to find stories about Mm -hmm. women working together in that kind of collaboration. There is an epic, actually, Karakalpak, a Turkic epic about a woman who leads a team of 40 warrior maidens and they go on adventures together. But I could only find a very short, abridged translation. There is no full translation of the epic, which makes me very sad every time that happens that I find out about an epic that is not translated to any of the languages that I speak. But uh, yeah, it's, it's unique. I know that the Greeks used to have an Amazon epic but it didn't survive. So some of these probably existed over the centuries, but many of them didn't survive. So is there a process in the folktale research to rebuild or restore stories like this, which don't have much documentation in some way? Uh, Yes. I don't usually call them folktales anymore. So, you know, if you find a fragmented story that belongs to a type that has many other variations, then you can rebuild that story. You can fill in the missing parts because then you know how this folktale type works. But there are also stories that are fragmented or don't have any other variations. So in some of those cases, I just color them and, you know, come up with my own version of them and I elaborate them and expand them. But then when I tell them, I don't really say, oh, this is a folktale. I could say, you know, this is inspired by a folktale or like a small part of this used to be a folktale. But I claim those as my own stories because I've changed them so much that I don't want to falsely represent the culture. There are some contexts in folktales which do not resonate with modern times, or I should better say they are not morally correct. Social practices of having multiple wives or physically abusing women, there are many. If you come across stories like these, which are folktales, how do you represent them in your storytelling process? So if I run into a story that I don't agree with, I just don't tell it. I get into a lot of conflict about traditional stories because some people believe that if it's a traditional story that it should be preserved and passed on as is, even if it represents values that are not universally accepted anymore. There's a very famous Hungarian folktale where the moral is that you should beat your wife so that she works better at home. I will absolutely not tell that story, but I hear a lot of people still telling it. And every time I'm just astonished how they don't realize what they are saying. It's it's actually a very graphic, like brutal story that is passed off as funny. How a wife is lazy and won't work. And then her husband beats her repeatedly to make her work in the house. And it's really horrible. And I would never tell it, but I get into conflicts with people who claim that, well, it's part of our tradition. And because it was different times, you know, you should tell it without changing it. My problem with it is that it depends on the context. So if I'm doing a performance for adults about, you know, gender roles 200 years ago, then I can tell that story and give them context and we can discuss what we think about this story. But I will never tell it to a bunch of children or just tell it without contextualizing it. I just, I don't tell it at all because I think it's a crap story. So if it has values that I think should not be passed on, then I just make a choice of not telling it. And then there are stories where I make some changes and it's either that I decide to make a change in the story or many, many times I discover through my research that the parts that people have a problem with are actually parts that are interchangeable. Like a lot of people have issues with, you know, kissing Sleeping Beauty. 
there was a lot of articles recently about how it's it's not consensual to kiss mm-hmm. a sleeping woman, which is completely valid. But actually, if you read multiple versions of Sleeping Beauty from different cultures, many times she's not waken up by a kiss. It's much more common that somebody pulls the splinter out of her finger, which makes a lot more sense. Like, I think the magic kiss is a romantic era, like 19th century edition. But originally, it's not usually the prince. It's the prince's mother or his sister or somebody like that who pulls the splinter out of her finger and wakes her up. So many times, just by doing the research, you discover that some of those values that don't quite work anymore were not core values of the story to begin with. Yeah, I totally agree with you because this is also one of my personal conflicts. I'm doing this podcast where I don't know who's going to listen it. It can be an adult, it can be a kid. My straightaway solution so far has been I just leave them. I don't pick those stories. I pick something else, which is more neutral. But I always had this conflict in my mind. Am I doing the right thing? But logically, I have always felt that, no, I should not, because I don't know who's listening and how they are going to perceive them. Absolutely agree. As a performing storyteller, as an oral storyteller, my first responsibility is to my audience. My second responsibility is to the story. If I can't do the story justice and the way I change it, then I'm not going to tell it. But my first responsibility is for the audience to be safe and to not receive something that I wouldn't want to pass on. That's always been a staple of oral storytelling is that the story is always shaped by the teller. And you pass on the core story, but you change it the way it fits you and the way it fits your community, the way it fits your your, your immediate audience, but also the larger community that you exist in and how and see what values this story will teach to everyone around you and what will get passed on through the story. Absolutely. The attention span, especially of the younger generation, has come down to literally few seconds. What tools do you use to grab their attention and also to hold them throughout the process of the storytelling? There is a problem with attention span. And you can tell with children who are not used to storytelling at all that they are very confused at first. And you you tell much shorter little stories and you do a lot of participation. I usually, you know, involve them in the story if it's younger kids. But at the same time, I think people are so starved for longer attention. When I'm face to face with an audience and I'm telling a story with no screen between us, then we are in the same shared space. I feel like people very naturally settle back into that because I think a lot of people miss it like subconsciously because they get your attention. Like I'm looking at you, I'm talking to you, I'm reacting to your reactions. So I think it's something that people don't get a lot of these days, that personal connection with the performer, it affects them in a very natural way. So it's not as difficult as one would think. Would you say that you mostly get like positive feedback from these sessions? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) that's great to hear. And that's so affirmative. Why do you think it is important to keep these folk tales and the oral storytelling alive? 
Yeah, those are two different answers, but they are related. Yes, uh, the oral storytelling part is the reason that I just said humans crave that connection, that experience of being told a story without having a ball between you or having a, a, another medium between you. It's a need for attention and connection. It's not just for the kids I work with, but for adults as well. Also creates a community. That's another thing that I think is vital going forward in this day and age to have a community that organizes itself based on their stories and telling and sharing those stories. And I'm not just talking about folk tales here, but any form of oral storytelling, of sharing your life story, of sharing your experiences. The other one about the folk tales themselves, I think these stories survive for a reason. The motives, the tropes, the symbols that exist in the traditional stories are something that have gone through many generations. And for some reason, they stick. They still have something to say to us. And digging into why these stories keep speaking to us is very interesting. Also, you know, passing on your culture and, and giving the children cultural heritage. And that's important as well. Passing on language, plus passing mm -hmm. on values, you know, mythology, your folklore is important. But also these stories have the kind of symbolism that allow us to face problems and challenges without directly speaking about them. So, you know, everybody can relate to battling a dragon that seems impossible to defeat. And you don't have to make it specific. You don't have to say, oh, that dragon is my boss or, you know, that <laughs> dragon is whatever I'm facing. But because we get them through symbols, you can work through them at your own pace. And I think that is very powerful. Do you see the newer generation taking interest professionally into storytelling? That is a very interesting question. You know, I was 20 years old, 21, when I decided to be a professional teller. And that in storytelling terms was very, very young. Storytellers in their 30s are still very much considered young. Especially in the United States, uh, there was a lot of talk about bringing newer generations into storytelling. And in America, a lot of that happened through personal stories, through the, yeah. the moth, through story slams. Bringing young people into folktale telling, that's a challenge. You know, partly because you have to make a living from it and that is difficult. It's not really a career option that they tell you when you're a teenager. <laughs> and it's very hard to start your life as a freelance artist. So a lot of people go into other professions and they build up to starting a career as a storyteller later on in their life. The interest is definitely there. I've mentored a couple of kids, preteens or teens, who were interested in storytelling and they were marvelously talented. And there are programs like that in various countries to have children's storytelling festivals or children's storytelling shows so they can take a taste of it. And then they will not jump in at 18 years old and become professionals, but they will have that option to circle back to later on. I want to wrap asking you, how do you see the future of storytelling? Where are we heading? That's a very, very exciting question. What happened in the US, in the UK and other countries a couple of decades ago is just picking up in Hungary. So we're starting to have storytelling courses, uh, festivals, you know, storytelling conferences, and it's becoming more known and more popular. And I'm hoping for Hungary that this trend will continue, but also in other countries that these festivals will keep happening. It was very interesting to see how much of it went digital. I do not at all believe that digital storytelling is a bad thing. 
having all of these events during lockdown online, when I could join in on an American storytelling festival or um, a Spanish storytelling workshop or anything that went online, I think that gave people a lot in terms of sharing knowledge and connecting with people around the globe. And it will develop into live storytelling as well. You know, lockdown gave us the push to share yeah. more, make it more visible and more accessible. And that mm -hmm. is kind of amazing. The other hope that I have is that storytelling will continue to find its place in communities, whether it is an NGO organization, if it is an urban space like a cultural center. It's an amazing gift for a storyteller to belong to a community, to keep going back to the same people, to have a relationship with them. And I have that here with the foster kids. This is 150 kids I've been working with for five years and I know them. Wow. They know me. I know their favorite stories. We have all these storytelling adventures together. And that is a gift. And as much as it's fun to travel around and go to festivals and do gigs in faraway places, and it's always amazing and really love it. But I think to any, any traditional storyteller or any performing storyteller, having your own community is the best thing that you can have. And for communities to have a storyteller, guarding their values, guarding their stories, and then passing on that experience is also vital for surviving. Dr. Zalka, it has been so insightful and so inspiring for me personally. I know my listeners will also learn so much and enjoy at the same time. Thank you so, so, so much for your time. Oh, thank you. It's been a lovely conversation. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed listening to this chat as much as I enjoyed doing it. To me, this was an extremely meaty, powerful and in-depth conversation and I have a truckload of takeaway from this. You can follow Dr. Zalka's work on her blog. I will share all those details in the episode description so definitely check it out. And as I always request, keep listening to Ofolk on any of your favorite pod platform. Ofolk is on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, GeoSavan, Ghana and so 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 many more platforms. Please keep sharing this podcast with people around. That's not just for me, you know, but most importantly for the stories, for the oral storytelling tradition. I am doing my tiny bit in sharing the stories, bringing in storytellers for you. And I hope you will do your bit too by sharing them. In the next episode, <laughs> let's see where my quest for folktales takes us. Until then, goodbye and take care. <laughs>